Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series Authentic, a study on the book of James. We're going to pray uh, this morning, and we're going to pray as we have been for other churches, and we're kind of working our way through the alphabet, and this morning we're going to pray for uh, Isle Hope Methodist Church, and I have a bunch of buddies that go over there, met with one of them for lunch this week, who actually invite, he's like, I invited somebody to your church this week, was, uh, and he's our lawyer as a church, and just a great dude, his name's Danny, and um, so we want to pray for their church, that they would keep preaching the gospel, and that those people would be growing, and that we would be growing over here, and as together we would be uh, encouraging one another uh, to pursue God. So let me pray. Lord, I thank you uh, that you invite us to yourself, that uh, we come out of arrogant pride, and we come out of fear of the grave that we've sung, because our Savior is alive, and he has risen. Um, and we come not in our own ability or our own arrogance or our own anything. We come in, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, our God. Um, and I pray as we come this morning in other churches, I pray for Isle Hope Methodist, Lord, as so many will gather over there this morning and worship Christ and that that church will be blessed and that the gospel would be clear and that, that the equipping of the saints would take place there, Lord, and here and in other bodies that are gathering this morning for the sake of Christ. I, uh, I ask that as I open your word, um, as we share, that, that you would just speak through me, Lord, that, that I would get out of the way and that the Holy Spirit would move in your body and that, that Bill Fowler would be nothing, that Christ would be everything. Um, and so, Lord, just I pray right now for that and that you would equip your saints, uh, your church, Lord Jesus, for your name's sake, for your glory, and for no one else. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, I appreciate some of y'all sitting in the windows, and, and kind of let me do some house cleaning before we go. Man, great day. Y'all can sit, too. You don't have to stand the whole time. I, you know, we don't want any Eutychuses falling out of the balcony and dying. I can't raise anybody from the dead this morning. I'm, just, I'm telling you. Um, so here's kind of the deal, and this, this is a great segue to what's going on at CBC. A um, couple things. Number one, for those who weren't here a couple weeks ago, we are building a facility behind us. Hopefully, you'll see dirt moving soon. Um, but... If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, we kind of, you know, there's some stuff on the website that's going to have the building and what it's going to look like. We are trying to raise some funds to do it um, so that we have to borrow as, as little as possible. People have been asking, and so this is a great way to, to kind of get it out to the whole church. If you're interested in giving to specifically to the building fund, um, just write building on your check, and we'll, we'll, we'll do that. So that's just real clear. If you, if you give cash in an envelope, put building, all right, and we can, we can take care of that. So that's the first thing. Uh, second thing is... Because the church is growing, we, we need community groups, and, and we need houses, specifically. Most of them are filling up, and so you're like, I can't, I can't lead, but I, I have a house. I, you live somewhere, and you're like, I can vacuum real quick and throw stuff in a closet. Well, if you can do those two things, then we want, and you're willing to host a community group, not be a leader, but just host it. Take the Connect card, right? I'm willing to host if you need me. Throw it in. Put your name on it, too. Don't just write that, because we all know who you are. So put your name on it, contact information, and say, I'll be willing to host. I got a couch. Um, and, and that way, we can start looking for more locations, because a lot of our groups are filling up, which is great, but we want uh, to provide opportunities for more. And so we probably need one in your location. There's a box in the fellowship hall that says shoes on it. Here's what that's for. One of our members has, is adopting their fourth special needs child, the Konofchinskis, from Ukraine. They have three, two from Ukraine, adopting a third from Ukraine. Uh, Stacy is heading over in May to pick up their precious little girl, and this is a fundraiser for them. 
Um, and so if you got old shoes, and everyone has old shoes, some of you have way too many old shoes, uh, what this organization that they're donating them do, does is they take them and they sell them and the proceeds go to um, the Konofchinskis and the shoes go to somebody. So there's kind of, it's kind of helpful. It's not just, you know, it's, it's a cycle here and they take them overseas and give them to people that need shoes. So it's a great way for you to kind of help them adopt this precious little girl, but at the same time, um, you know, just get rid of stuff in your closet too. So some of you can do that. That's over there. It'll be over there in a few weeks. We do have, they're going to have a garage sale in a couple weeks. We'll let you know about that. There is an art sale. Some of our SCAD kids that are trying to go to the, uh, Nicaragua. Um, that's coming up. That's in the bulletin. You might, it might be the next Picasso. Who knows? You could get it right now at a cheap price. So, you, might, you know, just saying, you know, never know, you know, could be an heirloom for your family one day, but that's going on. And here, and here's kind of the big other thing. And, and we announced this a couple weeks ago in, in a little bit more detail. We are going to a fourth service. Obviously, it is needed. Um, and our first fourth service will be on April the 5th, okay? And if you do your calendars and you look at that right now real quick on your phone, you'll see that that is a Saturday. And so what we are doing is we are going to add a Saturday evening service that will be temporary until we get in the new facility. And if it's needed in the new facility, Lord, I, I, if I can't fathom that it would be, then we can talk about that later because that means we would add like 600 people because our new facility will hold 750 um, and two services, 1,500. We're not there, but if we, we can talk about that if that happens. But it will be a temporary thing. We'll do it for two weeks. We'll have Easter off. We'll see, kind of put some bugs. Easter's another thing. We'll tell you about that next week where that's going to be. We're not going to be here. We're going to have one service again. We will have better parking, I promise, this year. Um, but that's, that'll be kind of coming down the road. But on April 5th, we will start that. It'll be basic, basic, no coffee. Pick your coffee up on the way. Basic nurseries, all those things. But that'll be going on 5 o'clock starting that week. If we can get 100, 150 people in that service, it'd be awesome because that'll free up seats. And we're not doing this, just so you know, we're not doing this because I like to wear jeans and want to be cool and preach on a Saturday night. I promise that's not the reason. The reason is we have no room to grow at all. We just have no room and we want to provide space for new people. Um, and so that, that's what we're doing. We're freeing up 40, 50 seats per service. That's what we can do, at least until we get to the new facility. But that's the heart behind this. It's not because... You know, I like to, you know, wear skinny jeans on a Saturday night. It's not what it is. It's because we want to provide space for people. And so we appreciate y'all. If, if you feel like, hey, that'd be awesome. I'd come to a Saturday evening. Hey, if we can get 100, 150, it'd be well worth it, okay? Um, so that's, that's kind of caught up on what's going on. More information to come on that. And our service teams are kind of getting ready now. You right now can turn to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you on page 654. That is where we will be. All right, so we've been in this, this series, we've called it Authentic for two weeks, it's our third week, and what we've seen is this, that this guy named James says, I serve Jesus, he is my God, he is my master, he is my Lord, and what we saw is, he's saying that about his half-brother, that Jesus is actually from the same mother, his mother is Mary, his dad is Joseph, Jesus' stepdad was Joseph, he's saying, I serve my brother, the Lord, the Savior, the Master, now, he didn't always believe that his brother was the Lord, Savior, and Master. At one time, he was a skeptic. At one time, he, he doubted. But what changed his mind was the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything. And so now he becomes a follower and a worshiper of the Lord Jesus, his Messiah, and his half-brother. Right? And, and he's writing to a group of Christians who are scattered throughout really modern-day Israel and, and in Syria and all those areas, and they've been pushed out of Jerusalem because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And they've lost homes, they've lost farms, they've been kicked out of synagogues, and they're just being ostracized, and they're, and they're facing hard times. And he is writing to encourage them, y'all, this, this is what your faith looks like lived out. Don't blend in, don't try to kind of just hide and make everything, all these troubles go away. 
This is what authentic faith, this is what it looks like to follow Christ, even in hardship, even in these struggles. And he's encouraging them in the midst of those things to not blend in, to be distinct and authentic in their faith, that live it out. You can't just be a profession and then hide. Your profession means you will live it out. And so that's what he's writing to these folks. And he started last week and he just jumps right in. He says, life's hard. I get it. Expect it. In the middle of it, what? Choose joy because you know that God is maturing you and making you stronger. Let him mature you through this. And then he says, ask him for help if you need it because he gives generously. That's, what, that's where we ended last week. Now, we ended last week, but James didn't end. He, he's still in chapter one talking about suffering. We ended because we were 45 minutes and that was our time limit. But James wasn't done. And so we're going to continue in that vein today. He's going to continue talking about struggles and trials a little bit. But here's what he does today, and I think it's so practical and helpful. He's going to highlight really three big areas in which we all face trial, right? And it may look different for you. It may be a little bit different manifestation, but these are big picture trials and temptations that all of us struggle with, that all of us see at some point in our life. And he's going to tell us, this is how to handle that. Here's how to handle this. Here's how to handle this. Here's some encouragement in this. And so that's what we're going to do. So let me just read through our text, and we're just going to look at these three trials that we all face, and then we'll talk about how James encourages us in them. All right? Chapter 1, and we are in verse 9. Let me turn this thing on. Okay. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. It flowers, falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. From every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, he starts off and he says this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, let the rich, let, let the rich boast in his humiliation. And here's the first trial, okay? It's the trial of what I call the haves and the have-nots. He calls the lowly and the rich. You say, wait a minute. Bill, the, the trial of being rich, that's not a trial, all right? And if it is, I'll pray for it right now. Lord, sanctify me with a Ferrari, please. Let it tear me up, right? Give me the beach house, Lord. I promise you it'll, right? That's the mentality. Being rich is not, that's not a trial. Being poor, yes, but being rich, certainly not. But, but James says it is. Okay? In fact, if you ask James, he would say, I would rather choose poverty than riches. And this, he's, where's he getting this? He's getting this from his big brother, who ultimately says this to the rich young ruler and to the disciples, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Harder than a camel to enter the eye of a needle. Not impossible, but it's hard. 
When he tells the, the parable of the sowing of the seed, the third soil is that which falls on the thistles and the thorns. And he says that those concerns and riches of the world choke out the gospel so that someone, someone never brings forth fruit. And so we say, oh, yeah, give me the trial of being rich. But it's, it's a much harder trial, even though it's one that we might think we can handle because it, you don't have, see a need for yourself. But he's going to tell them, hey, whether you have a lot or have a little, the solution is the same. Ultimately, because God really is not concerned with you being rich or poor. What he is concerned about is you being godly. So rich or poor doesn't make one more spiritual or less spiritual. That's, that's an issue with God decides to bless. The issue is, is their godliness, because you're going to see all types in this world. You're going to see the godly rich in this world. We're going to have the godly rich with us. Those who, who don't love money, they don't worship money, they worship Christ with their money. They, they're generous, they, they live with eternity in mind. Right? They're generous. God's blessed them, and so they're blessing other people. Guys like Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament. Guys like Zacchaeus, who's giving. Lydia, a seller of purple. Daniel was very wealthy. Abraham was very wealthy. David was very wealthy. Godly people who were very wealthy. You see that all through the scripture. You also see very godly poor people. The Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus himself, who doesn't have a place to sleep. The widow who... who her two mites is all she has, but she gives them. It's the people who are content. They're satisfied. They, they don't put their hope in riches here. They put their hope in Christ. You're going to see both of them, but you're also going to see the ungodly rich where he who dies with the most toys wins, and I'll cheat, and I'll scrap, and I'll do whatever it takes to get ahead, and, and whoever I hurt, it doesn't matter, and I'll ignore my family. I'll ignore everything to get ahead, and I'll just store up treasure for myself. Guys like Herod in the scripture, Right? And the rich young ruler. And then you have the ungodly poor. They're the sluggard. They won't work. They, they don't care. They don't take care of things. They, you know, as soon as they get paid, they go out and buy a, a case of Natty Light and $50 in lottery tickets. And that's just the life. And they're broke until Monday. And then that's the cycle. He said, and you're going to have them all. But what we want to be is in category one or two, the godly rich or the godly poor. Which, let's, but let's just be real, real quick and honest. Because you live in the United States of America, you're already richer than 90% of the rest of the world. Even if you're like, oh, I'm a poor college kid, you still have more than 90% of the world. So just let's put that in the context. But let's just, let's just see what he says. How do we handle being a low and how do we handle being high? Right? He says, first, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And lowly there could be poor financially, but it could be even beyond that. It could be just low, just a low person. Low on the totem pole, marginalized, no one likes me, no one notices when I get my hair cut, no one wants to sit with me at lunch, I'm middle management, I'm average, I'm a C student, I'm, I'm just a, invisible, right? That, that kind of idea. He says, you should boast in your exaltation or your high position, as some translations say. You think, wait, wait, I'm low, I'm broke, I have zero in retirement. I don't know where my mortgage is coming from next month. I'm a nobody. I just got fired. Right? I just got dumped. Whatever it is. He says, you, you want me to boast in my exalt, in my high? How, what high position are you talking about? I think the key word here is in the word brother. Let the lowly brother. Or you could say lowly sister. Because where he's pointing here is who are you? Really, not, not your net worth, not where do you work, not how many letters in front of your name. No, who are you really? You're a brother, you're a sister, you are in Christ. 
And where he goes here is where Paul goes and John goes and all these other guys. He goes to your identity. Where is your significance? Where is your value in life? It's not in your net worth. It's not in how you dress. It's not in what church you go to. It's not how how thin or thick or whatever, what school you went to. And, And that's where the culture goes. But you, brother, get your exaltation. You get your value where? It gets from Christ. You get it from Christ, right? How does the father see his children? He sees them in Christ. What is the value of the church in God's eyes? It's in Christ. How does the father feel about his children? They're they're his kids. In fact, they're his heirs. And James is going to say, has not God chose the the poor in this world in chapter 2 to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? He's going back to identity. Just like Ephesians, when we study it, he's going back to identity. How does the father feel about his children? Everybody who's had a baby. I've never met a, a parent who didn't think that their child was the absolute Cutest child who ever lived. In fact, they are concerned that Gerber has not been knocking down their door to put him on the oatmeal box, okay? That's what they think. And it doesn't matter if their child looks like Yoda or not. It doesn't matter. (laughs) You think that your child is the, the cutest, prettiest. Look at this perfect child that should be on Huggies, should be on everything. The next comic, this is it. Why is that? Because it's yours. Because it's precious to you. Because you couldn't live without and that is the way the father sees his children. How does he feel about his children? You are the apple of his eye, the psalmist says. He is crazy about his children. And so when he says, you're, if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I'm just low. I am a nobody sitting in a green chair. I might even be in a windowsill. I have no job. I have not a good job. My hair has been you know, moving from here to other places in my body without my position, permission, right? <laughs> I, I, I am now an XL. I was a medium at one time. I drive a this, I drive, whatever it is. Your value is not in those externals. And I think that's where we have to keep coming back. doesn't matter what people think. Say, I'm I'm a nobody. The father doesn't think so. I'm worthless. You're worth the blood of Christ. How much value is there? I'm broke. He says, you're an heir to the kingdom. No one cares about me. Christ cares about you. And that's the solution for the, for the lowly is in your identity in Christ. It's finding it not externally, it's internally. Look what you have in Christ. You've been kicked out of the synagogue? Look what you have in Christ. You don't have your farms anymore? Look what you have in Christ. No one sits with you at the lunch table? Look what you have in Christ. Your husband won't talk to you? Look what you have in Christ. That's where he goes. And it's the same place he goes to the rich man. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich man in his humiliation. Say, how is a rich person driving a Ferrari? How is that humiliation? Here's why, that key word, because. This this word hati that, that explains it. Why is he in humiliation? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its fall falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. He's saying this, the rich guy and the poor guy, where do they end up? The same place. The same exact place. The, the neediness spiritually of the poor guy, the neediness of the rich guy, same need, a savior. It's harder for this guy to see it because he's got more and maybe he's eaten and he's got the Ferrari, but they both have the same need, Right? And, and if this guy is pursuing this and he thinks that's where he's going to find significance and, and, and satisfaction, he's wrong. 
Don't find your identity in those things. And where do we find it in our culture? Technology, technology fading. iPhone 3 comes out, woo! It wasn't even called 3 at the time, it was just iPhone. I mean, you can't even download Angry Birds with that thing anymore, that's like so ancient. There's been the 4, the 4S, the 5, the 5S, the 5C, the blah, 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 blah. Your clothes, whether you're wearing Levi's or designer $700 jeans, no one cares. 20 years are gonna be out of style anyway. Holes in them, right? Your car, maybe you're the one that bought the Maserati because of the Super Bowl commercial. I cannot imagine you did, but maybe you did. <laughs> Dumbest commercial in the history of the Super Bowl, whatever. In 15 years, my Honda's gonna be running and your Maserati's gonna be on the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the point, who cares? No one cares, 15 years is done. Doesn't matter how many letters in front of your name, how many zeros behind your retirement account, he's saying it's, it's passing away. And if you are gonna put your value in that, it's emptiness. You need to identify with the one who is despised and rejected by men. That is where your value is. And it's harder for the rich man. This is why James constantly goes to the poverty side. It's harder for him to see his need. Not impossible. Look, we have many people in this church that God has blessed. And if you, God has blessed you financially, do not feel bad. Don't let some Christian tell you you should feel bad. Don't let some pastor tell you you need to sell everything and move to Peru. That, if God tells you to do that, fine. But don't feel bad if God's blessed you. Just don't put everything in that. Because what happens when you lose your job? And some of you will. And all your identity is wrapped up in that. You're going to be hopeless. What happens if all your identity is in your 16-year-old so-and-so getting the scholarship because you're spending the last 12 years driving to Atlanta and Mississippi and Philadelphia and all these places because he was going to be the best soccer player? What happens when the colleges don't start calling and there's no scholarship and your identity isn't wrapped up in that and it doesn't happen? What happens? What happens if you lose your health? What happens if you go from a medium to extra large? What happens if your hair moves down from your head to your back? What happens? If, if your value is in Christ, you've lost nothing. And if your value is in that, you've lost everything. Everything. And so when Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain, that means if you have a bazillion dollars, when you die, your, your attitude is good riddance. Because my real inheritance is here now and it's so much better. That's why it's humiliation, it's harder. But he goes the same place, identity in Christ, identity in Christ. Both places. What's the solution to having much, to having little? What does Paul say? I have had a lot and I have had a little. What's the solution? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The solution still comes back to Christ and being content with that and being found in him. That is your identity. And that's where he goes. And that's what he encourages you. Look who you are. So whether you're here and you're in great need or you're in little need, don't rest in anything but in the identity of what, the finished work of our Savior, of our God, Jesus Christ. That's where he goes first. Let's look at the second trial. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. What, what's, the, what's the struggle here? Okay, and it's the language of the Beatitudes. And again, that's Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the poor. Blessed is the, blessed is the hungry. Blessed is, he uses the same language. You could translate it content or satisfied or happy. Satisfied is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It's the same word steadfast there that we looked at last week or persevering. It's just the verb form. 
All right? The one who continually perseveres under trial, the one who remains strong, he is happy, he's content, he is satisfied. What's the struggle here? What's the temptation? Here's the trial. The trial is to quit. He doesn't say, blessed is the one who quits, who gives up. He says, no, the one who remains steadfast. And why is he blessed? Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the one who perseveres, and at the end, the one who loves God in the middle of it, that person is blessed. Why? Because he gets something. He gets, he will receive the crown of life, which God promises. And when God promises something, it's not like, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. This is going to happen for those who do this. You get the crown of life. And that's a very cultural metaphor for them. They understand what crown is. It's this Greek word, stephanos. It means it's just a little wreath that's put on their head. You win the race. It's right out of the, kind of the Isthmus Games or there's something like the Olympics. You get the wreath. You're kind of the, the honored guest. You get the wreath. If he was writing it today, he might say, you get the Lombardi Trophy. That's kind of something that's more practical for us. We see the, that's for the ladies, that is the Super Bowl Trophy, okay, the Lombardi Trophy, right? Something nor the Falcons nor the Eagles will ever see um, in our lifetime. But you get something that everyone wants. You could use it right out of the, the metaphor of the Olympics, the gold medal, right? These athletes have been training for years these, for these, these athletic events or these quasi-athletic events, a.k.a. ice dancing, right? Not a sport. It's a hobby, but that's okay. Either way, hockey, sport, ice, dancing, fun, the difference. But either way, they, they pursue a gold medal, a, a crown of life, so to speak, something that has value. And they put effort and work and time and blood and sweat and tears, and they're up early and they're there late and they have pulled muscles and they have all these things. Why? To get this gold medal, this, this great reward. They don't quit. Bless, bless, the ice dancer walks off the ice. No, no. They keep pirouetting or whatever they do away on the ice for hours and hours. Why? Because the goal, and he says, the one who doesn't quit, the one who remains steadfast, the one who loves me in the midst of this gets the crown of life. And there's this idea of reward. The solution to quitting is to look at the great reward that God has for his people. This crown of life. And there's a lot written on rewards and what that looks like in heaven. And I'll be real honest, I don't, I don't completely understand it. Here's what I know what the scripture teaches, that every single one of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he says it in Romans, that every, not for your sin, that was taken care of at the cross. You're not judged for your sin. You are, judged, you are evaluated based on your service. James 3, we'll see it in a few weeks. Don't become teachers, many of you, because you will incur a stricter judgment. So there is an idea where there's an evaluation. Every single one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus. This is your gifts. This is your talents. This is what I give you to, to serve me. And you'll be evaluated based on what God gives you. I don't know exactly how that works because, quite honestly, heaven is great for everybody. You're not going to be like, oh, I live down on St. Peter Avenue. That's like, oh, the slums of heaven. No one's going to be saying that, okay? And no one's going to be like, oh, I'm kind of half heaven, half out. No. Heaven is amazing for everybody, but in some capacity, Jesus promises reward. Some will be over 10 cities. Some will be over great, have great authority in the kingdom. 
right? And so there's something there. And what, when, when Jesus wants to encourage his people in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, and he wants them to press on, what does he say? There is great reward coming. There is something awesome coming. Look forward to it. Look forward to it. It's going to be awesome. Last summer, we took the kids, and what they would say is the greatest vacation they've ever been on in their short existence. We went to the sweetest place on earth. I've told you before, Hershey Park, right? And we were pumping this place up, me and my wife. I mean, we're, it is awesome and roller coasters. We're going to be in this great hotel and the streets have made her chocolate. You can literally eat them and everything. We're just kind of pumping it up and the kids are excited and excited. They're counting down. They can't wait. They're, we can't wait to go to Hershey. I mean, it's exciting. And we get there and everything meets their expectations. The roller coasters and we ride them until we can't ride anymore. I had a blast. But this idea of expectation, of, of pumping this up, of look for what's coming. And that was just for a couple days at an amusement park. These Olympians, for a, for a little gold medal that in four years, no one will remember their name, and it's going to be on the mantle in some frame, and in 20 years from now on eBay. And he says, the crown of life, of eternal life, forever and ever, it's going to blow your socks off. I have gone to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would not tell you. I would tell you. And so Christ is preparing something for those, for his children. And imagine, picture heaven, y'all. Just picture heaven that one day you will stand before the Lord Jesus. And maybe the crowds will be there, the myriads and myriads of Christians from all time cheering you on. I don't know what it'll look like, but you will stand there. You will look the Savior and the creator of the world in the eyes. And how amazing would it be for him to say, great job. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, those, you, see, you see those guys in the cheap seats? They're here because of you. Because you loved them. Because you sent the check to, to that missionary who was so-and-so, and you never saw, you never, and he won all those people to Christ because of you. You loved your kids, and, and they went on and did this, and they, in college, and they, see those people... Look at the impact you had. Well done. Well done. You never know. You'll know then. And you can't fathom the reward. You cannot fathom how, how amazing heaven is. And it's not three days. It is eternity. And so this light momentary infliction, Paul says, is preparing us an eternal weight of glory that we, we can't, it, you cannot fathom. And so he says, don't quit. You're, when you love me, when you persevere, when you remain steadfast, there will be great reward for God's people. That's where he goes. The haves and the have-nots, they find their identity in Christ. Those who are tempted, and there's some of you are, this morning, you are ready to, to walk out on that job where you're treated unfairly. Your marriage is not in a great place, and you're sick of that person. You're sick of that guy that lives next door. You don't want to love your neighbor. You want to call the cops on them. You want him out. You wish he moved. Whatever it is, you're sick of praying for that. You're sick of the pain, the physical, chronic pain. And you just you just want to take some medicine, make it all go away, and just whether you get addicted or not, you just want to quit. James, brother of the Lord Jesus, would say, "Don't quit. You don't. The slight affliction is there's glory coming. There is a reward coming for those who persevere. Keep keep going. You can do it. Your Savior will empower you." One more, one more trial, and this is a common one. This is the one that I call the blame game, right? And we all play it. 
Last week, somebody locked the master bedroom door. Went upstairs trying to get in. <sighs> Door's locked. Who locked the door? Can't get in. Don't have the little key to get in. Who locked the door? The only three culprits could have been one of the three boys. All right? Because they were all upstairs. Sam, did you do it? No, no. Must have been Seth. Seth, you do it? No, no. Must have been Trip. Trip, you do it? No, no. Must have been Milton. Milton the sanctifying dog. Doesn't have thumbs, but he can lock the door somehow. Everybody's blaming. And there's something in us that wants to blame. And it comes from our father, father Adam, who in Genesis 3 takes of the fruit. God says, have you taken of the fruit? And he says, there was a woman in the garden with me. And she needs help, Lord. She, ha- she needs counseling. And you gave her to me, God. So really, it's your fault. That's where Adam goes. He blames God for giving him the woman who tempted him to sin. And ever since Genesis 3, there's, a, there's something in our DNA that just blames someone else, someone else's fault. And what the temptation here is, these people, God, we are following you and we get kicked out of the synagogue. We are following you, we lose our farms. We are following you, we lose our, hand, our houses. This is your fault, God. You must want us to sin. You must want us to not follow you. That's the temptation, to blame God. I mean, look what he say. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Right? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts nobody. See, with every trial comes temptation. Every trial has a temptation. So if it's you're, you're in the lowly position, temptation is to covet, to be greedy, to cheat to get ahead, to do what it takes, to not be satisfied. Maybe it's something as little as, can't find my car keys. That's a little trial that you face, right? And what do you want to do? You want to blame, can't get the door open. You want to blame, 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 blame. There's a little trial, a little temptation, right? Maybe it's a physical thing. God, if you really cared about me, you would make my, my medical condition go away. And we start doubting. In fact, I would argue that when you are under a trial and a hard time, that is when you're most susceptible to temptation. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired. One of those things, HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, that is when you're most susceptible. Right? And so he says, don't don't start blaming God. Your, Your God never, ever, 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 ever would seek to destroy your faith. Your God would never, ever, 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 ever seek to lure you into sin. What kind of father would want his kids to rebel? None. If anything, 1 Corinthians teaches that God limits the temptation so that you may be able to endure it. Now, does God allow a test? Yes, he does. Does he allow it? Yes, because he wants us to to be made stronger. He wants us to persevere. He wants us to grow. The Holy Spirit actually leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. But Satan tempts and lures because he wants to destroy. God allows the test because he wants to make you stronger. There's nothing in God. He says, God does not tempt, nor is it even possible for him to be tempted. He tempts no one, right? It's not on God. It's just not, you cannot say what's God's fault. Well, whose fault is it then? The devil. Fine, it's the devil. The devil made me do it. The devil does tempt. The devil does lure. But that's not what he says. He says, each one is tempted when he is lured enticed by his circle at your own desire. Own. It's, it's on, this is your desire because of Adam, because of fallenness, because of sin. And he uses this word Lord, which is a, it's a fishing word, actually. 
just like throwing the hook in the water. Not a fisherman, never claimed to be. A few months ago, though, took the kids camping. We went fishing. Got the Snoopy poles out, right? And I'm thinking, there is no way we're catching a fish. There's no way. I don't know how to fish. We get on the dock. I got kids jumping up and down, and there's like 70 yards of line in the water, and there's a bobber, and the worm is barely on the hook. And I'm thinking, there is no fish in the world that is dumb enough to bite the hook. In fact, I can see, we can see the fish looking at us, jumping on the dock, line, bobber, worm hanging. They're, they're not coming, y'all. They're not that dumb. But sure enough, they're that dumb. <laughs> because a couple of them things grabbed the hook. Kids jumping it all. Hey! What was it that made them bite the hook? There is something in them. Worm, I want worm. I don't care about bobbers, 60 yards of line, and kids jumping. I want worm. And something in that fish's nature makes it grabs on, and it gets caught on the hook. And what James says is we are just like that dumb fish. That there's something in us that desires sin, and when we, when we don't flee it, when we don't deal with it in a biblical way, we get hooked. We get taken away. We get lured, and we get captured. And understand this. Temptation is not sin. Just because you're being tempted is not, that doesn't mean you have sinned. You have to understand it because we have people always tempted in this area. Temptation is not sin, right? But, but biting the temptation, that's where sin is. You live in a fallen world, you're going to be tempted. It's just going to happen. But that's not the sin. The sin is when, when we grab onto it. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and understand this also. Some bait is more attractive to other people than others. Some people struggle with this temptation. Other people struggle with this. And this may not be a temptation for you, but it is for him. I don't struggle with gambling because I am too cheap. I, am, I, I, I don't even like paying the parking meter. I'm not going to throw money away in gambling. That is not a temptation for me. But we have men in this church that they can't even talk about it. Football season is hard. That's their temptation. That's their lure. We have some folks... Alcohol is not an issue. Other folks, they cannot even go to a house where it's being poured. It's, it's huge. Pain pills for this person, big, not for this person. We have folks with same-sex attraction. That's their struggle. We have folks that can't even have a computer. It's too strong of temptation. Understand, whether it's where you've come from, choices you've made, background, whatever it is, there's different temptations that you will struggle with. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. That's not the sin. The sin is what? When you, when you bite the hook. And here's the, here's the response for us. Some of you are playing with the hook, right? You're just like that fish. I won't bite it. I'm not dumb. But you're just swimming around it. Not a big deal. I can handle it. I'll just kind of touch it with my fin once. Boop. That was nice. Nah. Swimming around. Figure eights. And the biblical response to temptation is get your tail on the other side of the lake. It's to flee it. Because sooner or later, you keep swimming around this thing, you're going to bite it. And what happens when you bite it? You are carried away. And there is no catch and release. This is not. Look what he says. 
Desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it's the image of a baby. Oh, it's just a little baby. It's cute. I can control it. I can handle it. It's no big deal. Yeah, and that baby grows up, and then it brings forth destruction. Some of you need to flee right now. You're a little flirty, flirty at the office, playing a little mind games. You need to flee now. Oh, I'll just put some, I'll just add another accountability partner. That'll be it. You need to flee, not manage, not touch it with your little fin. You need to run because you're going to end up on a plate. No fisherman does, fisherman doesn't have a sign. Take the bait. We'll reel you in, cut you open, rip your guts out, throw some butter in you, and then put you on the grill. Didn't that sound good? But that's where it ends. Destruction. That's why he says, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Right? You cannot control it. So flee it. And don't think it's God's fault just because the hook's in the water. And that's where he's going. That's the big point. That was a little sermon inside of the sermon. But the big point is, this is not God's fault because the, the fish is, there's a hook in the water. You're, he tells you what to do with the hook. He has told you the truth. He has told you the end game there. You end up on a plate. So get away. Flee. Get away. Don't blame God. Why can't we blame God? Look at verse 17. Here's the nature of God. All right, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift from above comes from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. What's the nature of God? God is good. He only gives good things. If you have anything good, financial, spiritual, physical, it came from him, whether you knew it or not. Your job came from him. Your spouse came from him. Kids came from him. Money came from him. Lunch came from him. Everything good comes from God. Everything evil comes from Satan or from within. He can only give good. He is the father of lights. That's the father of the, the stars in the heavens. And, and they are huge and enormous and grand. And he wants you to see how glorious those are so you see how glorious he is. But then it says this interesting statement. He does not change like the shifting shadows because the sun is changing. And the moon is changing and the stars are expanding and they're growing and all these things. But guess who doesn't ever change? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was good then. He's good today. He's going to be good tomorrow. He only gave good things back then. He only gives good things today. He only gives good things tomorrow. And that's where he goes. He says, you want the solution to all blaming God? No, no. Look at the goodness of God. Look at what he has done. Look how gracious and kind and forgiving he is. And run to him. And he uses us as the example. He uses you and me. Look what he says at the end of, in verse 18. Of his own will. Of whose will? Of his will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That's the gospel. That we should be a kind of first fruits. The first fruits was the best of the harvest, the very first. It's the most prized part of the harvest. He says, I made you my children. I made you the best, the cream of the crop, my prized position, the apex of creation. I did it through my own will. I chose you. I brought you forth by the word of truth. That is the gospel. That's what God does. Satan destroys. God gives wisdom. God gives life. God gives escape. God gives himself. He says, do not buy the lie. Satan's been talking about how bad God is and how he doesn't want your best. He wants you to do this. Back in the garden. Oh, didn't you know God's keeping this from you? He's been doing it ever since. No. Look at the goodness of who God is. Look at the fact that you were forgiven of your sins. Look at the goodness of God leaving heaven, becoming a man, taking on humanity, dying on a cross for your sins and rising again. Look at that as the epitome of God's goodness and his love and his grace. And look at the future of your reward. He says, that's where you go. 
And it's not because of you and it's not because of me. It's all because of him. It's because of his graciousness and his love. In my house, I'm more of the law guy. My wife is more of the gospel gal, right? So if the kids want something, where do they go? They go to gospel because they know law is going to shut them down. So at 4.30 at night, kids want a cookie, they don't run to dad. I'll hear them going up the stairs. Where are you going? Got to ask mom something. Why, why don't you ask me? I'm right here. <laughs> Got to ask mom something. Because if they say, dad, can I have a cookie at 4.30? You know what I'm going to say? No. Eat your dinner, eat your vegetables, then you can have a cookie. See, that's law. They go to mama. Mom, can I have a cookie? <laughs> and you know what mom says as the gospel one? I love you. Yes, you can have a cookie. <laughs> All right. And what's, her hope is this. If I give you a cookie, you'll eat your vegetables because you love me and you know I love you. My hope is you eat your vegetables, you get a reward. Which one's gospel? She's gospel. Right? Because what God has done is this. I loved you when you were unlovable. I gave you my son. And what I want now is because you see my love, you love me. So you get the cookie and you eat your vegetables because you know how much I love you. See, that's gospel. And what we want to do is we don't want to teach our people, and please don't teach your teach them to eat healthy. Don't give them cookies. I don't care what you do with cookies. <laughs> but don't teach your kids. And if you're a Sunday school teacher, don't teach the kids here that if you obey, God loves you more. That if I obey, then God loves me. If I don't obey, then God doesn't. Because that is not the gospel. The gospel is God loves me, so I love him, period. God loves me because I was dead in my sins, and he sends his son to die for me. That's the gospel. So please, and that's where he goes, look at the gospel. Look at the good news that God loves you. He gave himself for you. You were an enemy. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, yet he loved you. So that's where we want to be. That's, because that's, that's where James is. And he did it. And we'll, we'll transition this because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. How with all these people on the sides, I have no clue. But we're going to do it, all right? But here's, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. That he, Jesus had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's the satisfying of God's holy wrath for the sins of people. For because he himself suffered when he tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What he's saying is this, God took your sin on himself. He was put in the grave for the payment of your sin. But he came out of the grave and he is alive. And now that he is alive and he has suffered for you, you can go to him when you are being tempted. You can go to him when you're being struggled because he's not in the grave still. He is alive. And he is a faithful high priest who wants to help his children. And he gives good things. And he never lets you be tempted beyond what you're able. Two passages. We don't have time for them. You guys look them up this week. Meditate on them. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. All right? Memorize it. Meditate on it. It's the passage that says, no temptation is stronger than what you can bear. Second passage, 2 Peter 1.3. And really, kind of that whole section where he says that you have everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness in Christ. Some great verses to just take with us. It's never the devil made me do it or I have to be lured away. Right? Try all the rich and the poor, they find their identity in Christ. Want to quit? Look at your great reward. You want to blame? Blame God? Look at the goodness of God. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, which shows us the goodness of God. And the way that we're going to do it is the men are going to hand it out somehow, some way. All right? We'll get to everybody. Just in the quiet of your heart, just, just spend some time in confession and worship.
and reflecting on the cross. And when you are ready, partake. Partake of the, of the bread, which represents the body of Christ, and the juice, which represents the blood of Christ, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Right? Think about those things. And again, think about that God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. All right, let me pray, and then we'll worship. Father, I thank you for your son, uh, for his goodness and his grace. Um, we're all going through just life, Lord, in this fallenness world, and, and there's struggles, and, and we acknowledge that, but we, we just look to you, our Father of lights. There's no change. There's no shadow. Uh, there's just a rock, a redeemer. As we celebrate this table, Lord, uh, we think about your son, our savior, our God, our, our everything, our all in all. I, I just thank you that he would humble himself. Being rich, he was made poor so that we might become heirs. Just everything we've talked about, Christ is the model. He is the model. And so we worship him, we exalt him, uh, we thank him for being our savior uh, and for shedding his blood and for allowing himself to be broken and crushed for us. It's in Christ's name we pray.